Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhry. Our show contains lots more global politics, and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Konst YouTube channel. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hey, welcome back. Good to see everyone still here. And we have a really special segment now. We're going to be talking to Philip Proudfoot, who is the founder of the Northern Independence Party. Uh, you may not be familiar with them because they are very new on the scene, but actually were founded and contested an election in very short order in, uh, in the UK. And, and we'll be talking to him about that. Thank you, Philip, for coming on. And it's perfect because, uh, as I think was just telling you, we had a long conversation with some folks uh, from Scotland and Catalonia and Kosovo about self-determination, and that's at the heart of your project. Can we just start by you telling me just a little bit about uh, the foundation of the Northern Independence Party? I would say just up front, like, uh, people who are impressed with the effort would call it like, you know, the beginning of a new democratic process. And folks who aren't would be like some sort of meme Twitter thing that's gotten out of control. Uh, tell us the actual origin story since it is you. Yeah, the meme Twitter thing is funny because it, it was that at the start, but now we have, you know, things like ratified standing orders. So I think we're like the first meme shitpost party that has an entire web of bureaucratic infrastructure emer <laughs> emerging behind it to try and control it. But yeah, we did start um, partially, partially as a joke, I suppose, but like all good jokes tell you something real. And it, the reason I, it founded on the basis of, um, there was a moment in Britain when we were, the approach to lockdown during COVID was to uh, implement like different um, degrees of lockdown around the country. And uh, the North was kept in lockdown for longer. Um, and Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, because the infection rates were, were high in the North, and that's for complicated reasons, but Andy Burnham requested um, additional support. And then central government, which had been guaranteeing an 80% um, cover on people's lost wages, offered Manchester 67. And it was kind of the most like visceral in your face demonstration of this like deep structural inequality in the UK, which we call mm -hmm. it the North South divide. And then however you look at it sort of statistically um, in terms of health, education, take any statistic you look at, you'll see that the North is in a different kind of relationship to the Southeast. Um, and it's not, I mean, we do find that, we find similar phenomena like that across the world, um, where the capital cities and those areas surrounding it gain more access to sort of wealth, power and privilege. But people don't quite realize, I think, just like how exceptional the UK is in terms of that, in terms of just how much money and investments goes into one tiny corner of the country and how everywhere else is left to either decline or the population is expected to move away and the thing about covid is that it, it really revealed like uh, the the um uh, the secretary general of the un said that covid's like an x-ray reveals the fractures in every society well our fracture is the north south divide so we yeah we started as like this twitter page responding to that as a kind of joke but then i put up um 
I was like, okay, it's gained traction really quickly because this is a sentiment, this is a, this is a material reality in the UK that people can connect to. So the moment we put up this Twitter page, suddenly we started getting more and more followers. So then I put up a sign-up form, started a WhatsApp group. The WhatsApp group turned into a Slack office. That then turned into a combined Discord and Slack headquarters. And then suddenly we're getting, you know, we've got thousands of members now. We have a we have a strong income stream. We've contested elections. Um, it may have started kind of a bit joking around with Andy Burnham, King of the North, taking on London, these kinds of sentiments. But it also has become a serious thing. And also, you know, we call the country we want to build Northumbria mm-hmm. because the United Kingdom itself isn't an entity that has existed all through history. There was the last time the North was a self-governing polity, it was called the Kingdom of Northumbria, which people don't realize means north of the Humber. The Humber is a sort of a river that comes in at the, at the marks the beginning of the North. And then all those territories north of that were, were a, separate, a separate kingdom. I mean, we don't want a kingdom. We just like the name, so we call it Northumbria. Yeah. But, you know, you know it's... It, it's real, it's a joke, it's multiple things at the same time, but it is a political party now uh, so, as well. I mean, one of these things that is through line that we were talking about on that previous panel was that in the 21st century, a lot of these kind of independence projects are a reaction towards um, wanting to set up a social democratic project in the face of neoliberal opposition yeah. You know, one could even almost call it neo-colonial when you have something like the UK, which is, of course, a project of empire kind of at its heart. Um, do you see similarities in what you are doing and say with the SNP, where, again, it really is kind of a quest for social democracy, yeah. you know, more than some kind of ancient intractable, you know, uh, uh, fight on the island? So I like I have a, a particular position on the sort of... Um colonial question. The North is not colonized. It was not colonized. It was part of British Empire. The North, while it was, while it is the most impoverished part of the UK, it nonetheless benefited from um, a history of colonial relations around the rest of the world. So the North, for instance, the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, shipping was going too. Shipping, (laughs) um, you know, like weapons manufacturing, the biggest employer in the northeast was a weapons manufacturing so the north was embedded within those broader colonial relations but that doesn't necessarily mean that the kinds of economic forms of exploitation that existed in the north were not things that were then exported out in a hyper form uh, to britain's colonial uh, possessions mm. but it but the north was embedded within colonialism but that doesn't mean that breaking up the UK is not a good project for, for, for destroying the legacies of colonialism. De- ending the UK as a, as a union itself as a, is actually you know, a relatively progressive project in the same way that we see in, in Scotland. And yeah, I mean, like, obviously, obviously, when you compare the nor- North or Northumbria to Scotland, the, the similar sort of relationship with Westminster it, it, it's clear to all. So, for instance, the North would never have ever had, if it was an independent political project, a Tory government. Even in 2019, when people talk about this defeat, I mean, first of all, they've bought the Tory PR, uh, propaganda um, uh, line, which is that the Red Wall has collapsed. Well, actually, you know, a few seats in the northeast collapsed, and 
it would still, if it was an independent country, have produced a, a, a progressive democratic socialist government. So we have the same, and the same is true for Scotland. Like Scotland has basically the times in which we've been represented by the government we voted for since the birth of democracy in the UK is about 30% of the time. Um, and it does not seem like anyone in, um, anyone in Westminster is keen on transforming the electoral system. So the same kind of like arguments around how do we actually build democratic socialism uh, in the UK has to move on with Scotland and Wales to viewing that the, the biggest enemy to democratic socialism is the UK itself as a political entity. It's designed to prevent, uh, you know, not, not even, you know, wild, wild democratic socialism, just something a bit better than, the, than what we have now is not possible within the union. So, yeah, it is, it is part of that. It, it, we do connect with that kind of progressive part of the SNP. Um, yeah. I mean, I think to some folks who even think of a, you know, United Confederation that is the geopolitical entity that the UK encompasses, um, would maybe even be improved by making England a bit smaller, that it's sort of, yeah. you know, a bit of a too big of a gorilla uh, to, to play well with other entities. Uh, so, I mean, one could almost argue that some kind of project like this could also restore a confederated union of folks by making something more stable. Uh, yeah. But... Let me ask you, I guess, maybe the trickiest question, which is now, and as a person who, uh, you know, is not reporting on this, but does campaigns for a living, like the easy fruit, the low hanging fruit has been gathered. The people who are sort of very ripe and a little sour on labor who are really ready to hear you, uh, you know, between six and 10%, even some places, which is quite a lot, is great. As you know, every percentage you go higher than that becomes harder and harder to get. Yeah. What are yeah. the things you're going to do to try to get more people to become a, a sustained, uh, viable party that's actually competing to win places? And it, it must be, and sorry to like feed the answer to the question, but it must be more than just getting disaffected labor folks because otherwise you're both just trying to park in the same parking spot. And uh, it maybe does allow others to slip through more easily. Like, how do you make kind of a, a holistic appeal to all kinds of just now yeah. you just you tell me? Well, I, I think that um, we really haven't captured all of those labor folks, actually, because if you look at the um, local elections, most people who would have voted labor, we haven't got the full analysis yet, but they seem to have stayed home and not voted for us. Some might have voted for the Greens. Um, so I think there's still actually quite a huge proportion of people that we will ultimately begin to, to appeal to. We also hope to, obviously it's very early days, we're six months old, but like one of the segments of the population we can directly appeal to are those who um, bought into, um, and it's complicated, but bought into the kind of Brexit type agenda. Mm -hmm. So those people who feel that their towns have been left behind and that they blame the European Union for that. When I say that, I'm not pretending that the European Union is some sort of like an actor, a benevolent actor that isn't involved in that process whatsoever. But nonetheless, that sentiment of wanting to take back control, that great slogan, you know, like that would connect to a lot of people who hope to um, uh, see positive change in these like left behind regions of the UK. And on that front, you know, like um, the reason why we push, what, the reason why we think we can appeal to them through the through independence is that in the history of sort of 
an attempt to devolve powers in the UK in the in 2004 there was a referendum in the northeast to uh, northeast is the poorest part of um of England where I'm from uh, there was an attempt to establish a ref, uh, an assembly kind of what like what they have in Wales but even less power the man who led that campaign to stop that happening 80% of people voted against it the man who led that campaign do you know who he was do you know who he is Dominic Cummings Oh <laughs> led that. Dominic Cummings led the anti-Northeast referendum yeah. <laughs> campaign, and he led it on a on a, a platform we'd agree with, in a, a platform that we think would sweep up that those kind of like very angry people. Left yeah, he's no dummy, right? He's not. He's not like his campaign was. This is an expensive talking shop. The people don't want more. Uh, they don't want more politicians. They want power, and the sort of argument for devolution is always going to end up being framed through, oh, well, here's some more expensive politicians. Here's another layer of representatives between you and the people who actually control uh, the p control power, control finances, control the treasury. Just more talking until you actually get to it. So independence is a claim is saying, no, actually what we're going to do is we're going to put power right in the heart of the North and then we'll take back control of our own. So, the, you know, you can see there's that appeal there and what you're doing which what La so if you look at what Labour did uh, in terms of their campaign, it was to have Keir Starmer stand in front of a flag and hold a pint and kind of nod and wink to that sort of reactionary na reactionary nationalism in the north. What we're doing is we're trying to take that and 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 point it in the what we would see as the right direction, which is a particular economic model that has allowed for the depopulation of these small towns, has has destroyed our communities, has forced all of our um, all of all young people to move away. It's not the, the the blame for that does not fall on migrants. It does not fall on all these other places in which the Tories would want to position that blame. Uh, it falls on the Westminster system and trying to point that anger towards a correct form of analysis and doing so we could sweep up that 10-15% of voters. Disaffected voters, we can, we're can we going to work at appealing to them as well through the sort of like, um, through the like bold proposal to do something radically different and uh, and having, we're going to really focus on like building local local candidates going forward. Like we've got, a, we've got a candidate academy, we're identifying people within the party who sit in like potential marginal seats. And then we even have Tories. We even have former Tories now joining the Northern Independence Party. And they join as well on the basis of the North-South divide. You know, our biggest problem is that um, because of the North-South divide, people who have the time and capacity to engage in politics, they live, tend to live in the Southeast because they're not working in like crap jobs in the North and they have like a bit of time free and they're not exhausted through like various forms of like you know manufacturing is still relatively high in the north as a form of labor so we actually need to find a way in which people in the south can support our movement even while not being members if they don't feel it's for them even though we are trying to build a you know a radically different country in the same way that scotland is that would be um, welcoming and whatever so you know you can see there are all are actually all these broad coalitions that we're trying to figure out how to bring in but it's a work in progress we're brand new how and to me and yes you're brand new and obviously you know you're exhausted coming off of you know six months followed by an election uh yeah. this week but what um as you're looking forward as you're recruiting candidates and as you're thinking about messaging what what seems to me the broadest challenge you have especially in the coalitions you're talking about building is the fact that labor others 
many others, I don't even want to single out labor there, have cynically kind of confused white nationalism with working class pride for decades and yeah. decades. Uh, and this seems to me to be a big problem because even, and I, you know, I have not been uh, as far in travel the Northeast, certainly place you're from, but in the 2019 elections, I was in the Midlands a lot. I was talking to people in places like Wolverhampton. I do have some idea of the kind of when you get out of London, what people are feeling. Um, but the most effective organizers I saw were definitely people in the pockets of communities uh, of color, especially this is where real organizing that was effective was happening. So you want to have, you want to make sure even tactically as you're putting together a coalition to make sure that those folks feel welcome coming in. How are you balancing yeah. that out? And it's not, and it's a problem that you're inheriting again, that's yeah. decades old. So yeah. if you don't have a brilliant answer right off the cuff, do not feel bad. Well, we're directly confrontational with that. Like nothing, you know, like one of the reasons we set up the party is that structural economic thing. But for me, like that issue around whatever we want to call it, identity, culture, the way in which we've been like portrayed as sort of like people from the north are sort of reactionary bigots. That upsets me. I'm trying to not use harsh language here. A great, a great deal. And I often talk about this, right? When I was growing up, Right. In my granddad's, uh, my granddad lives in a small left behind town in northeast Durham, um, in, in northwest Durham. There is a house there uh, near his house where they would fly a big union flag. And we were told as children, <laughs> don't go and play there. They're weirdos because they were like BNP members. They was, these were like the outriders. And if you look even at the history of sort of reactionary politics in the UK, it's very difficult to identify a sort of right-wing fascist racist leader who emerged in the north of England. What tends to happen is they're from the southeast. I'm not saying that this is an essential thing. I'm just talking about what, what we see historically. Mm -hmm. And then they attempt to take the No, it's important because there is the narrative versus reality and one has the taken over. Is that we're the bigots and we produce yeah. these like sort of racists who then are, but then it, Nigel Farage, where's he from, right? Where's Tommy Robinson from? Where's like uh, Nick Griffin from? Where, where's uh, Oswald Mosley from? Point to me one leader of, of, of sort of British fascism who is from the North, other than they try, they try and take the North. And you know, everyone knows about like the Battle of Cable Street, but there are also lots and lots of battles like that in the history, in, in the North, where we pushed back fascism as well. But because you, you know the real reason why that sort of, um, the problem is, is that, you know, these Northern Safari journalists, they go to uh, Weatherspoons in the middle of the day in the North and they find a drunk who's saying something ridiculous. They'll get that ridiculous shot Totally. of that drunk saying something and i would wager even with that drunk guy if you kept with him and you kept talking you would actually find that what's informing that like ridiculous racist position he says is not some like deep-seated like commitment to fascism it's largely just a misdirection of his anger that's a product of all sorts of sort of media uh media educational like manipulation that can be like it's just deeply frustrating to, to have that sort of the way in which the North is represented. And like, you know, under Corbyn, Corbyn's problem was that those sentiments were left to grow. They were not directly tackled. They were sort of like uh, pushed aside. There were those moments where like, you know, there were those videos put out where 
um, Corbyn was saying, um, like, some guy was blaming migrants, and then, like, there's a guy, like, telling him, no, that's, don't blame migrants, right? Okay, fine. There's that stuff. But then under, you know, the Tories are perfectly happy to just play with it, exaggerate it, use it mm -hmm. to build their to, to build their electoral power. And now Keir Starmer is doing, like, basically, basically the same thing. And I think it has to be tackled head on. And uh, one of the ways in which you do that is, is like some of our projects, we'll be starting our own podcast. We're going to try and have our own media where we talk about the history of like anti-fascism in the North. Because, you know, I could go on and on about this, but if you think about, it's, it's a product of the North-South divide. So like most activism and organizing and things like that tends to be done in the Southeast anyway. So we're already not front and center of the conversation. So then if you look at things like, um, you know, the Windrush scandal, it kind of gets a London centric take on it when actually huge elements of the Windrush community were in Liverpool. And like Liverpool kind of gets forgotten in all of these narratives mm. itself um, and kind of seen as an outrider. And then th there's just so much work that can be done to try and reverse this representation of the North that is inaccurate. I mean, one of the things, you know, for Ramadan, uh, we put out our Ramadan message had an image of um, uh, South Shields Yemeni community that's that's lived in Yemen, uh, that's lived in, the, in South Shields for hundreds of years. And people don't know about like this, this like idea that is a monolithic white block when actually we have these, these communities have lived since for hundreds of years in South Shields. I mean, this is this is a another example of this. Um, is um, there's a Roman fort in the northeast called um, Arabeum, I think, and the reason is is that the the soldiers stationed there were from uh, Mesopotamia. <laughs> so you know the north the north has been international since. I mean, they were soldiers stationed in the northeast, okay, but still, nonetheless, it's been international for centuries. But nonetheless, it gets portrayed, and it it really is a huge annoyance for me and it, one of the reasons why I started it is also yeah, coming up against that same idea among people who I would expect to be comrades in London uh, thinking oh the North they all vote Brexit they're all bigots London has the monopoly over diversity London is the, just yeah it's a sore spot <laughs> so I mean so what are next steps in terms of uh, elections kind of what that you, that you all want to contest uh, to make sure you know that these narratives get cemented what what is what's going on what's so, up um we are likely at the moment now going to focus really hard on like building the party because we were rushed so quickly into that election that we approached that election basically as using the by-election as a megaphone and uh, we increased our membership by several thousand thanks to that by-election and that was that was the, basically the intention was to use it as a means to gain even more uh, media representation. So we got lots and lots of articles in The Guardian, in The New Statesman, to try and pick up those members who you mentioned earlier, disaffected Labour, Labour supporters, because while a lot of our membership are people who've never been engaged in politics, some of them are uh, Labour, disaffected Labour members, and we deliberately try to pick them up because they're incredibly talented activists, etc. So now we have that membership, we have those resources, we're now gonna try and basically um, 
really focus on building the organization, building the different units, research units, um, uh, the campaigns unit. Uh, we also, as we're now moving out of lockdown, you know, a lot of people say, why aren't you, you're all online, you don't do community organizing. I mean, we've, for God's sake, we've been in a pandemic where we can't really do that. Ethically, we don't have liabilities insurance. We didn't have liabilities insurance. Now we have an infrastructure in place where we can actually start doing community organizing. And, and that's the next step, basically, is, is, is that, you know, we're going to do everything that the Labour Party should be doing, uh, is, is basically the, the plan. So if you look at somewhere like Hartlepool, uh, there was that vicar who runs a food bank who spoke out against Keir Starmer. Mm -hmm. In no world should a vicar who's running a feed, food bank be feeling disconnected from the Labour Party. The Labour Party should be like front and centre maximising those voices. It, they, they, they should be funneling volunteers into these initiatives. This is like core parts of like what it means to be, I think, like a democratic socialist in your everyday life. <laughs> So we're going to then start moving into not making up our, we're not going to, you know, all these initiatives exist. We're just going to help funnel our activists to start doing like immediate yeah. practical solidarity. I think being helpful with social services is one of the big components that's missing in kind of modern socialism. Yeah. yeah. And like I, I had a debate, right, with, um, with uh, uh, a new Northern Tory for Barrow and Furness and the Conservative Party in the UK is starting to adopt the tactics of community organizing, community wealth building, and then Labour are just doing like focus groups, flags and pints. So it's just like when you say again, talking about who we're going to pick up, you know, Labour will continue to shed members and shed votes like it's just it's just I can't get my head around what they're doing. So, yeah, the next steps are basically we want to become a force in, in the community now that we're out of lockdown. Um, obviously, we weren't doing that during lockdown. And a lot of the problems we faced are to do with the fact we were an online movement by necessity. Um, so, yeah, those are the next steps, basically. Cool. And when you all have uh, your leadership uh, elections to sort of formally democratically enshrine the process, we would love to check in just because I think it's interesting watching uh, you know, a party kind of come to grips with its democratic processes. We were talking uh, last week about Cinque Stella, you know, which is yeah. sort of, a, you know, one of the first people to kind of toy around with these uh, at least online ideas of coming together. But Philip, thank you so much for coming on and explaining to no us problem. what's going on in the North. And we appreciate you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for inviting me. La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida, sacrificarse hasta la muerte